All right, we are back, and um, we traditionally, in our third segment on the program, reserve uh, obituaries. There's an obituary we need to talk about uh, today, and to help me do that and take a look back at uh, at the Vietnam era and, and some parallels to the modern situation we find ourselves in in Iraq is our general manager, Stephen Valentino. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Steve. Douglas, thank you for having me on the program. Now, you know, you and I talked about this because I know that uh, you hadn't heard of this guy, and I, know, I think most, a, a great many of our listeners have no idea who Hugh Thompson was. Well, I had heard of the My Lai Massacre. That's something that's definitely been covered, maybe not in history books, but from an alternative media perspective, that's something that's talked about frequently. But the story of Hugh Thompson is not something I'm particularly familiar with, which well, is why I'm surprised you're asking to interview me about it. But well, I'm, I, I, I would just appreciate your help for that very reason, that it is, it, is, it is before your time, but yet the story, I think, should be known to people uh, who would like to look back and be aware of important things in our past. Certainly the trial of William Calley divided the nation. We, are, we remain a divided nation. Uh, we have different ideas about what's appropriate for soldiers overseas. And uh, boy, I tell you, the split in this country was never more profound than when Calley went on trial for what took place at My Lai. Okay, now where does Cali fit into this whole story of the My Lai Massacre? Well, the My Lai Massacre was, uh, was ba- took place under the direction of Lieutenant William Cali. He'd been sent in as a group, an infantry group, to uh, an area that had supposedly been offering support to the, the Viet Cong, and they were expecting a quite a large contingent of enemy combatants in this village. As it would turn out, uh, a large number of men, I think estimates are about 80, People participated in the massacre, went into this village and did not find military-aged uh, males. They did not find weapons. What they found were women and children, babies and old people, and proceeded to treat them as enemy combatants. The result of which was about 500 people were basically lined up and shot by our troops for what some would say is no very good reason. I would be inclined to agree with that. I have a uh, website's description here in my hand which goes as follows. At the least, many of the men had become frustrated over civilians harboring Viet Cong operatives. There was a constant fear of ambush and a feeling that the war was being lost, which added to the day's tensions. According to intelligence, most of the villagers headed to their local markets at 7 a.m. With the attack, scheduled for 8 a.m., soldiers were told to assume that any persons remaining were, in all likelihood, either VC, Viet Cong, or VC sympathizers. They were ordered to destroy the village. Soldiers were led into me lie by Lieutenant William Calley. They failed to find any insurgents, just ordinary villagers. But having been psychologically braced for a major fight, the soldiers opened fire on the villagers and killed 504 innocents, including infants. What's especially horrible about this is that before basically lining up the people and shooting them, uh, there were many rapes committed and reports of torturing some of the people before they were killed. Um, this was truly a black mark in U.S. history. We don't think of, of American troops as going out and committing atrocities, but certainly on this day, they did. Or certainly things that I, I would think would qualify as war crimes. Yes, indeed. I'm reading in, in Chuck uh, Yeager's uh, biography describing how in World War II, there were times when the, uh, the Army Air Corps was basically told, go and shoot anything that moves which the pilots looked at each other and said, you know, if you're going to fulfill an order like that, you better make sure you win the war, because if you don't, you're going to be on trial for war crimes. So we have Cali lining up these people, shooting them. Where does, where does Thompson come in on, on this? 
Well, Hugh Thompson, apparently there were three choppers flying overhead whose job it was to draw fire from the combatants. And, uh, the non-existent combatants at this point. Well, they didn't know that at the time. They expected a big firefight. And apparently Thompson flew over and looked down and saw, for example, a place where a woman uh, was out in the field. Thompson's crew uh, ordered her to stay down. She apparently understood, but she was soon found by the troops and shot. Let me quote from the U.S. News & World Report article on Thompson's passing. On this morning, no one was shooting at them, and yet they saw bodies everywhere, and the wounded civilians they had earlier marked for medical aid were now all dead. As the chopper hovered a few feet above the paddy field, the team watched a group of Americans approach a wounded young woman lying on the ground. A captain nudged her with his foot, then shot her. The men in the helicopter recoiled in horror, shouting, You son of a bitch. Thompson couldn't believe it. His suspicions and fear began to grow as they flew over the eastern edge of the village and saw dozens of bodies piled in an irrigation ditch. Thompson's trying to put this together in his mind. How did they get in the ditch? Maybe they caught artillery fire after they were trying to run away. He couldn't make sense of it. So Thompson puts the chopper down near this irrigation ditch and he asks a sergeant if the soldiers could help the civilians, some of whom were still moving. The sergeant suggested, yeah, they can help them by putting them out of their misery. Stunned, Thompson turned to Lieutenant Callie, who told him to mind his own business. Thompson reluctantly got back to the helicopter and began to lift off, then Andreotta yelled, my God, they're firing into the ditch. Thompson finally faced the truth. He and his crew flew around for a few minutes, outraged, wondering what to do. Then they saw several elderly adults and children running for a shelter chased by Americans. We thought they had about 30 seconds before they die, recalls Colburn. Thompson landed his chopper between the troops and the shelter, then jumped out and confronted the lieutenant in charge of the chase. He asked for assistance in escorting the civilians out of the bunker. The lieutenant said he'd get him out with a hand grenade. Furious, Thompson announced he was taking the civilians out. He went back to Coburn and Andreota and told them if the Americans fired to shoot them, meaning American troops. Glenn and I were staring at each other dumbfounded, said Coburn. He says he never pointed his gun at an American soldier, but he might have fired if they had first. This is a, a rare event where U.S. soldiers turn weapons on each other. Well, this is why it, it's such an astounding event in what happened. Thompson was prepared to have his, his people in the lightly armed chopper open fire to save these civilians because he just said, what's going on here, as he said later, was murder. It's a clear-cut difference between war and murder. What was going on here was murder. That was not what he was brought up to do. And he basically, at that point, called in the gunships, which then landed because they were larger. He had a three-man helicopter. There was no way to remove anybody. And perhaps for the first time in the Vietnam War, the gunships then evacuated the civilians away. He waded back into the ditch, and they actually extracted a boy who was uh, covered with blood but had no wounds on him and then evacuated him from the scene. So following this horrible massacre and then the removal of some of these civilians, what happens after that? Well, Thompson was pretty enraged by this. He went in and threatened, told his superiors, you know, this is what we're conducting. This is how we're conducting the war over here. Just take these insignia off my uniform. They're just sewn on. And he apparently didn't report it, but thought it was an outrage and just went on assuming that there'd be an investigation and they'd be court-martialed. In fact, there was no such court-martial. So then how does this then reach the public domain? Well, apparently a soldier named Ron Ridenauer found out about this, and he was determined to get the story out. He worked with people that had been in the massacre, talked to them about it. He was quoted as saying people told him, oh man, we massacred this whole village. I said, what? He said, yeah, we massacred this whole village. We just lined them up and killed them. I said, what do you mean? He said, men, women, kids, everybody. We killed them all. 
I said, well, how many was that? He said, oh, I don't know, three or 400 at least, I guess. A lot. Everybody we could find, we didn't leave anybody alive. At least, we didn't intend to. Ridenour was determined to get the story out. He wrote letters to uh, everyone he could think of in Congress. And finally, Mo Udall, who was then a congressman from Arizona, called for investigations. Investigations led uh, to eventually a trial, although the only person ever convicted, as we said at the top, was William Calley. He served three and a half years under house arrest and then was eventually pardoned by Richard Nixon. Another shining gem in the crown of American democracy brought to you by Richard Milhouse Nixon. Well, it wasn't Nixon's finest hour, although it does. there is bipartisan blame to go around. Apparently then-Governor Jimmy Carter in Georgia, mm-hmm. when Cali was put on trial, had people drive around with their lights on to show support for Cali, who it was felt was being scapegoated. Now, Cali was being scapegoated by his superiors. He was doing what they told him to do. Ridenour noted that at one point he was flying in a chopper doing the same thing that Thompson was doing and that they'd only found uh, something like 30 people that they had opened fire on, whereas the chopper before him had, in the similar, similar period of time, killed like 800 people, which led him to conclude that the people before him were being a lot less discriminating about who they were shooting. Mm-hmm. Now, Callie may have been a scapegoat, but was there any, any he, formal investigation into higher-ups at the Pentagon brass? Uh, no, he was treated like a bad apple, <laughs> sort of reminiscent of the Abu Ghraib scandal. Callie certainly, was, cer- Callie certainly was one of the prime movers in shooting people. Mm-hmm. He basically was goading many of his men to do what he wanted them to do. In fact, at one point, they were guarding the civilians, and he came back and said, I told you to, to, to take care of them. They said, we are taking care of him. He says, no, no, I mean, shoot him. At which point, he actually took the M16, turned around, and opened fire on them while on automatic. So, Callie certainly deserved prosecution. Where does Seymour Hirsch come into this? Well, apparently Hirsch uh, heard about the story from, from Ridenour and others, covered it, and that uh, he basically gets a lot of credit for, for breaking the story in the American uh, media, which, which, in fact, he did, which is kind of interesting because he was only working for a very small news agency. All of the... Uh, the majors apparently missed this one in spite of the efforts of Ridenour. Surprise, and surprise, I, that I they just glossed over that one. Exactly. But and Hugh Thompson himself was, uh, you know, he was treated like a guy who was being a crybaby because a few civilians accidentally were killed. He would enter an officer's club and apparently within five minutes, a hundred guys would walk out. He was pretty much, uh, you know, uh, shunned by uh, a lot of his colleagues, which is pretty hard on him. But he said, you know, I was always sure I'd done the right thing. And apparently, um, uh, CBS News uh, interviewed him back a few years ago when he was honored by being put into the um, Army Aviation Hall of Fame, something he was he was grateful for ultimately. And toward the end of his life, I'm happy to report that uh, the Military Service Academy started inviting him to visit them and to give lectures on military ethics to young officers. For Hugh Thompson, in the end, there was at least some recognition that he had indeed done the right thing as a soldier. Which he received before he died, which in many cases does not happen. Usually it takes much longer for these kinds of things to be recognized for what they are. Well, just before we leave the subject, I would mention that Ridenour had noted that other people just trying to get to talk were put out in the field for a really long time, mm-hmm. where there was a very high mortality rate, and that uh, the co-pilot of Thompson, who crashed the helicopter, he was in five crashes, by the way, said that after he reported this incident was sort of looked on with disfavor, he was flying around without a lot of support a lot of times. The implication being that uh, the Pentagon wouldn't have minded if he'd become a casualty of war. And I can't rule it out. Suppression of what's going on in a war is something that's been common throughout history and is still going on to this day, even though, you know, we think we're getting the story 
the real story that's coming out of Iraq, but I, I, I would hasten to believe that for a second. Well, I mean, I think in war more so than any other field of human endeavor that, you know, in, intelligence is, is power and that there's a, there's a lot of effort made in, in telling things the way you want them to be told to your own advantage. Exactly. No matter how many bloggers you have on the ground, you're still going to need good soldiers who are going to stand up and actually say something when they see atrocities being committed, which we already know that atrocities have been committed in Iraq thus far. We're not supposed to consider in America that you're just following orders is, is completely acceptable. That's what we put Nazis on trial for in World War II, and that was their defense. I was just following orders, and the Nuremberg trial assured the public that this was, this was not going to be a legitimate defense in cases of atrocities, which, which, which Milai certainly was. Conscience is very important. And just the final item I want to note, that uh, a, a little bit after this event, about six months later, a soldier in the 11th uh, Light Infantry Brigade wrote a letter telling of widespread killing and torturing of Vietnamese civilians by entire units of the U.S. military. This was not specifically referring to My Lai, but about, you know, My Lai, this is the thing about My Lai, too, we should stress. Wasn't the only time this was happening. Right, this was a widespread practice. Well, I've heard many people allege that it was. The letter, it went up and down the chain of command to a major at that time, who was the deputy assistant chief of staff of the AmeriCal division. He was charged with investigating the matter and formulating his response. This was Major Colin Powell. Or the former dove of the Bush administration, I might add. Yes, he was. Uh, uh, he investigated the soldier who wrote the letter and then basically reported that everything was pretty much hunky-dory. He said there may be some isolated in incidents by individual bad seeds, but there were no widespread atrocities going on. He wrote rather dismissively, quote, In direct refutation of this portrayal is the fact that relations between American soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. Well, case closed. Yeah, indeed. I think it's very important to be mindful of stories like this and people like this, because if we don't pay attention to things like that and pay attention to people who stood up against atrocities, we are bound, I think, to repeat them. Well, as George Santayana said, if you forget the past, you're, you're condemned to repeat it. And I think that that's why I hoped you'd join me in taking a look back at this, because this is the kind of thing, unfortunately, to some degree, we are seeing history repeating itself with, with events in the Middle East, and, and I'm sorry to see it. Stephen Valentino, our general manager, thank you for walking me through that. It, it's a complicated matter. We probably couldn't do it justice if we even devoted a whole hour to it. At any rate, I thought we should take some time to salute one of the few heroes of the incident of Me Lai, chopper pilot Hugh Thompson, deserved that much. He did the right thing and, and paid a price for it. Much as many whistleblowers do. Running out of time, a few miscellaneous items. We note also in our obituary section the passing of biologist Robert Livesey, who cataloged the frogs of Costa Rica. He was a longtime professor at Cal State University, Sacramento. This is especially um, curious. Uh, his passing is coinciding with the discovery of why frogs are disappearing in Costa Rica and elsewhere around the world. It now appears to that a fungal infection appears to be tied to global warming. People have been noting the loss of frogs now for quite some time and have been concerned about this canary in the coal mine. 
Uh, we're going to try and speak maybe with some, some colleagues of Dr. Livesey over at CSUS and perhaps here at UCD about uh, the, what's going on with the world's frogs and is this really a sign of bad things to come. On a happier note, it appears that NASA has finally gotten its Pluto mission launched into space. We're going to talk about that at length uh, in the next couple of weeks. We didn't know this, but our own uh, news director here at, at uh, KDVS, Drake Martinet, is, uh, is the president of the Astronomy Club here on campus. And, and we have a, an in-house expert we're going to consult about uh, things on the edge of the solar system. That should be fun. Final item of the day, on January 9th of this month, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera became the longest-running Broadway musical in history. Uh, the gala performance on that day marked the 7,486th performance, one more than Cats, which closed five years ago. Curiously, Phantom has three performers who have sung the same show eight times a week for 18 straight years. Had a chance to see it a few years ago in San Francisco, and if you haven't, I suggest you take it in. It's pretty good. Our thanks today to Jeffrey Callison of KXJZ's Insight, former Reagan administration participant Barbara Honiger, Religious Studies Professor here at UC Davis, Allison Kuder, and our own General Manager, Stephen Valentino. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. Now, stay tuned for Todd. <laughs>